0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 9 this morning, and we'll be looking at uh, the first nine verses as we see the saving of Saul of Tarsus, one of the great events of history. Acts chapter 9, I'll start reading in verse 1. And since, again, I'm reading the Word of God and not the Word of man, I encourage you to give very careful attention to the reading of God's inspired and holy Word. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, They brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. And may God bless the reading of his word. This uh, passage that we are now beginning to study on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus has got to be one of the greatest events in church history. In fact, I think... I would say that next to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the spiritual transformation of Saul into an apostle of Jesus Christ is one of the most important events in world history. It is so important in this this particular event that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, not only records it for us as it happens in chapter 9, But he also records two more times when Paul is sharing his testimony in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, the very same circumstances of his conversion. So three times the Spirit of God is going to give us in the book of Acts the opportunity to relive this amazing event. Now, humanly speaking, without the Apostle Paul we would not have 13 of the 27 uh, books of the New Testament. In other words, we wouldn't have 25% of the New Testament. Without the Apostle Paul, humanly speaking, we would not have the New Testament's emphasis on our unity in Jesus Christ or justification by faith alone. Or unconditional election by the sovereign grace of God. Or the atonement of Jesus' death. Or the implications of His resurrection. All of these and so much more that Paul emphasizes in his letters, humanly speaking, we would not have without the Lord saving this incredible sinner who becomes an amazing apostle. Also, humanly speaking, without the writings of the Apostle Paul, many of the church's greatest servants would not have come to faith because they came to faith through reading the letters of Paul. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, all of these men were converted as they read Romans and other letters that Paul wrote. The growth of Christianity from a mere Jewish sect into a world religion over a period of 30 years in the first century is largely due to the missionary activity of this man. So I think it's not a stretch to say that next to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conversion of soul to Christianity is the most important gospel event in human history. And we get the privilege of seeing how the Spirit of God describes it through the writing of Luke. Well, let's begin in the first two verses where we are reminded of Saul's pre-conversion hostility to the gospel. We read in verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, there's no gender discrimination here in persecution, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now several weeks ago, when we were in chapter 8, I likened Saul's persecution of the church to that of Adolf Eichmann who was Adolf Hitler's right-hand man in carrying out the final solution where he went to exterminate the Jews. Adolf Eichmann won the title of the architect of the Holocaust. And he was the Nazi bloodhound that was tracking down Jews and arresting Jews and deporting them to the extermination camps And Saul at this point becomes a forerunner of Eichmann. Saul's hatred of Christians paralleled Eichmann's hatred of the Jews because Saul now is like that that Jewish bloodhound on the trail of Christians seeking them out, tracking them down, arresting them, dragging them back to Jerusalem where in effect they would experience their extermination not in gas chambers, but by being stoned to death. Paul would say in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, that I persecuted this way to the death. I understand that Paul himself, whenever he would find Christians and capture them and arrest them, would not himself personally execute them or kill them, but he would drag them back to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin would try them And then he would cast his vote against them to put them to death. In other words, Saul played not only the bounty hunter role, but also the prosecutor and the jury who would always vote to put them to death. So he had much blood on his hands. When you look at the depth of Saul's hatred of the church, we see in verse 1 it's described that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He'd been doing this for a long time. He's still doing it up to this time. We had read uh, had read earlier in Acts chapter 8 verse 3 that back then Saul was ravaging the church from house to house dragging off all to prison. And that word back in chapter 8, verse 3, of Saul ravaging the church is a word that's used in the Septuagint. It only occurs this time, in the, in that one time in the New Testament in Acts 8 3. But it occurs in the Old Testament Septuagint of wild boars devastating a vineyard, just rooting it up, trampling it down, destroying it, and even of a wild animal ravaging the body of its victim. And that describes Saul ravaging the church back in that chapter 8, verse 3. Here, he's described as still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is the language of breathing threats and murder. It's used of, uh, in some of the secular Greek of animals growling, vicious wild animals growling right before they attack. Or the, or think of the hissing of a cobra right before it strikes, and so Paul is breathing. He's hissing. He's, he's growling in his anger and hatred towards Christians. And he's just breathing out threats and murder. You could probably imagine him at this point just walking around, just saying, talking to himself, man, when we find those Christians, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ravage them. I'm going to do everything that I can to punish them and hurt them and destroy them. He's just breathing, talking out these threats and this murder against them. He was a man on a mission. He is a man of a one-track mind, committed to destroy the church. And he would later boast that his zeal exceeded those of his peers, so that he was proud of the fact that he was he was the first place to graduate from the school of how to be a persecutor. He was the one who boasted and and just. His own prowess in in, in seeking out and destroying the church. And that's probably why later in his life after his conversion, he would say that he was the chief of sinners. He boasted that he excelled beyond even his peers in persecuting Christians. And then later after his salvation, he he would boast in the fact of how great his sin was. That I'm the chief of sinners. You see, at this point, Saul is blinded in his hatred of Christ, which spills over in his hatred for the church. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 16. That they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And that describes the depth of the blindness of Saul. He is, he is persecuting Christians to the death, yet in his mind, he thinks he's offering service to God. He thinks he's pleasing to God, when in reality, he's an abomination to God. He thinks he's loving God, but in reality, he is hating God. But you see, such is the nature of religious blindness. So that Paul would describe himself in Philippians 3 in this phase of his life, according to the law, i'm bl- I'm blameless. That's how blind he was to the depth of his own depravity and his own sin well we we read of the the depth of his hatred of the church. He was breathing threats and murder against them, and now the breadth of Saul's hatred of the church is that he's willing to go anywhere to track down Christians and arrest them so that hopefully they would all be exterminated. We read in verse 2 that he went to the high priest, the end of verse 1, verse 2, to ask letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So he goes to the high priest. The high priest was, of course, the head of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the legislative body of, of the nation of Israel which had jurisdiction over all Jews. So Saul goes to the high priest and basically is asking for arrest warrants for Christians. And the judge who could issue, the high priest being like a judge who could issue the warrant, uh, gladly gave them to Saul. The high priest, as I've described before, is kind of like a mafia godfather and he's more than willing to give legal documents to this man if he will go out and exterminate the heretical threat of Christianity. And of course, that spirit is alive and well in our world today, isn't it? Communist countries, Muslim countries, where they are so uh, zealous and persecuting Christians. It goes on. But Saul is willing to go to Damascus in verse 2. Damascus is the capital of Syria to the north. It's about 150 miles away. So it'd take about five or six day journey for Saul and his entourage to get there. Damascus was a commercial hub center with a lot of trade and caravans from all directions coming into Damascus. Had a very large Jewish community there. And the gospel apparently had made a beachhead in Damascus. So there was a A thriving, growing church there. Saul had heard about it. And he's wanting to go and exterminate. To try to contain the wildfire of the gospel. To try to bring it in. To try to persecute it to death. And notice in verse 2. He wants to go to Damascus. And if he finds anyone belonging to the way. Both men and women. He might bring them down to Jerusalem. It's interesting. The way is one of the early... Historical names for the church. Uh, Luke will use it six times in the book of Acts to describe the church gathered or they're, they're part of the way. And that expression probably has a twofold origin. It probably comes from the fact that Jesus himself described himself as the way. John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the followers of Christ were, were a part of the way. That is, they were a part of Jesus Christ. It can also secondarily refer to the very lifestyle of those who follow Christ. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7 said that the narrow way leads to life. The broad way leads to destruction, but the narrow way leads to life. And Christians are on that way, the way, the narrow way. So it could refer both to Christ and to the lifestyle of those who follow Christ, the way. Well, now we come in verse 3, this uh, amazing conversion experience. We read that as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So he's probably towards the end of his five or six day journey. He's getting close to Damascus. He's not there yet. But this amazing light flashes from heaven uh, on this this group of men. Now notice at the outset, I'll get into this more uh, next week, I think. But this is totally initiated by God's sovereign grace. Saul at this point is not interested in becoming a Christian. He's not seeking to becoming a Christian. He hates Christ. He hates the church. His heart is hardened against those things. He was not looking in any way to be saved. His will, you could not say it was in any sense free. It was in bondage to his own evil heart. But we'll get into that more later. But this light which... Paul, in chapter 26, as he's sharing his testimony, says, was brighter than the sun. And all this is occurring at midday when it's already the sun is right overhead. It's very, very bright anyway. And suddenly this light just, just descends like a lightning bolt upon them. And obviously this is a display of God's Shekinah glory of the Son of God. A theophany, if you will, of the appearance of Jesus Christ, like a like a bolt of lightning, the Shekinah glory just shining all around, and it was so fantastic in its effect that Saul and the other men all fell down to the ground. And Paul describes that later in Acts chapter 26. This was a terrifying shocking burst of supernatural light that buckled their knees and just drove them to the ground probably in fear. So that this theophany, this, this burst of light, like lightning, brighter than the sun, was like the, like the MC that walks out on the stage to introduce... Jesus Christ. Like like the light is just merely pulling aside the curtains so the glory of Christ will deal with this sinner, this persecutor by the name of Saul. And then in verse 4 through 6, we find this conversation of conversion. So he fell to the ground, verse 4. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now we're told in Acts 26, again, as Paul is later recounting this this, uh, conversion experience, that the voice that was speaking was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. And that's why only Saul understood it because he knew Hebrew. He knew Aramaic. But the other men with him, they heard the sound, but they didn't understand what was being said. They could have been Hellenistic Jews that didn't know Hebrew or Aramaic. But Saul certainly did. And the voice comes to him in a language that of all those people there with him, we don't know how many, there were a few, he was the only one who understood what the voice was saying. You see, God had no interest in calling those other men. They couldn't even understand the voice. But God has His eyes, God has His crosshairs on one man. By His sovereign grace, He was going to save one man out of that group. And it's Saul. God's sovereign electing grace. Why didn't He want to save all the others? He's only dealing with one man, Saul. And again, I think that's an incredible... Illustration of the Doctrine of Election. but notice what he says to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, what Saul is experiencing is out of this blinding light, this lightning flash that falls all around them, a voice comes out. And it's a voice of a person. And this person knows his name and calls him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, whenever Jesus called someone and repeated their name, you're in trouble. The repetition of the name Saul obviously is to get, it's an attention getter. But when Jesus does it, it normally introduces a reprimand. Simon, Simon. Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Martha! Martha! You are so worried and bothered by so many things, but really there's only one thing that is necessary. And your sister Mary has chosen the best part to sit at my feet. And now it's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus has his attention. At this point, I think there's another significance to the Lord calling Saul by his name. And that's found in John chapter 10, verse 3, because this is a conversion experience that Saul is is having here. And in John chapter 10, verse 3, it says that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. See, Jesus is calling Saul by name audibly, verbally as He's calling him into a saving relationship with Himself. Jesus doesn't call the other people there. He only calls Saul because it's Saul that He's after and it's Saul that He will get. Why are you persecuting me? Well, this is a powerful theological idea that makes a profound impact on Saul. Because obviously, Saul was not persecuting Jesus. Jesus at this point was had risen and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But you see what Jesus is indicating. When you persecute my people, you persecute me. And there's a tremendous truth that is embedded within this conversion experience of Saul of how Christ unites Himself with His people. Every believer. He is in union with them. He is one with them. So that what people do to a child of God, they do to Jesus. And if you mess around and persecute one of his children, he takes it personal because you're doing that to him so close is the union and the bond between the Savior and the redeemed. So this is a powerful thing. I'll get into that more in a moment. But at this point, Saul doesn't know who's speaking to him. So he says to him in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So now the voice gives a startling answer to Saul. I am Jesus. And you are persecuting me. Again, a second time. Indicating this unity between Christ and His people. You're persecuting my my disciples. You are persecuting me and I take it personal." And the voice is speaking directly to Saul and emphasizing you are persecuting me as you're persecuting these Christians. Now from that very moment of Saul's salvation experience, Jesus is drilling down into Paul's mind this important truth that He is is one. And again, I'm going to come back with that in a few minutes. But He is one with His people. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, get up and enter the city and they will be told you what you must do. So Saul is to get up and enter into the city and uh, he's going to meet Ananias later on in chapter 9. Ananias will be the instrument that Jesus will use to actually bring Saul to an understanding of the gospel. And we find the irony that's going on here is that the one who went to Damascus to take prisoners of others now has been taken prisoner himself by the grace of God. The one who went to arrest men is now himself arrested by God. And then in verse 7-9 through we have the response of the men. In verse 7, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open and he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Notice in verse 7, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. They saw the light, these other men, they saw the light, they heard the noise, they didn't understand the voice what it was speaking. It was speaking in a different language or, or either that or their ears just were prevented from understanding because a natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. But they see the light, but they don't see anyone. They hear the, the, the noise, but they don't understand anything. And again, all this is because Christ was speaking only for Saul's ears to hear. I would say that although it's not clear here that Jesus actually appeared to Saul in this light, I think Paul actually did see the risen, glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus. The reason why I say that is because in 1 Corinthians 15, later on when Paul's writing, all the different people that the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to, Peter and the disciples and 500 people at one time. And then he says, last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared to me also. And that language suggests that as as Jesus had appeared in His Resurrected bodily form to Peter and the disciples. He did the same to, to Saul at this point. So, possibly the Lord had revealed himself in the light. Saul could see him, the others could not. In verse 7, they saw no one, but, but Saul could see him. They heard the noise, they couldn't understand the voice, but Saul could understand the voice. So this is a very unique, targeted manifestation of the glory of Jesus, particularly to one man, and that is to Saul. Christ veiled Himself from the others. Christ stopped up their ears so they couldn't understand. And again, we see it as an illustration of God's sovereign choice here. But the truth that Jesus pounds into His head is also going to be emphasized in his writings later on, and that is this notion of unconditional election. There's no one who deserved to be saved less than Saul. And yet God in His grace chose to save him apart from nothing in Saul that could ever commend him to the favor of God. And really, we all fit in that same camp. And Paul will write of that. He'll... He'll, he'll expound it in the book of Romans and another of his writings because this election is another one of those grand truths that uh, he experiences at his conversion that just he, it never leaves him. It makes an indelible impression upon his soul and he'll, it'll, it'll affect his ministry from here on. Well, notice uh, again back in verse 7, the men who traveled with him, stood speechless. And in verse 8, Saul stood sightless. He was struck blind in verse 8. Though he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. Now later on, when, Demat, when uh, Ananias is with him, and, and, and he actually comes to his uh, saving faith in Christ, those, those scales, he had some, some kind of a physical scale on his eyes that would fall off. Uh, I don't know what that's all about, but that's what happened in his conversion experience. But at this point, he is struck blind by by Christ and he cannot see. He will be in that condition for three days, blinded by the light, blinded by his vision of Christ. And it, we are told in uh, In uh, verse 9, that he fasts for three days also, for he neither eats nor drinks. And Ananias will be told later on that he's also praying. Three days. So he has this incredible experience on the road to Damascus. The light shines. Knocks them all to the ground. He gets up and and a voice is speaking to him out of the light. And And I think he sees Christ appears to him in the midst of that, calls him by name and impresses upon this incredible reality that he's been persecuting Jesus as he's persecuting the church, and then he's struck blind so imagine this this is a he he, he sees Christ, he hears his voice he's convicted and rebuked for persecuting the church. And then he struck blind and now he has to go for three days and without seeing anything other than the last thing he saw was the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ in his mind. He can't get away from it. For three days, hearing the words reverberating in his brain, that image of seeing Christ, there's nothing else he can see. He's in the dark and for three days he's got to live with his thoughts of what has just happened happened to me. And I think his, his soul is being turned upside down. He's in a, he's in a point of personal crisis. A spiritual earthquake has, has, has shook his soul to the very core so violently that the flimsy building of his previous faith and religion have collapsed to the ground. Later on in Acts 26 again, as Paul is recounting this, Jesus also said to him, in addition, why are you persecuting me? He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that was also just in his mind for three days while he's in darkness. Can't see anything. All he, all he has is this incredible mem- memory of Christ appearing to him in the light and, and hearing these words from Christ. And in all of that, he's remembering it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're persecuting me. Now, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. The goad was a long stick with a sharp end. And if you had a, an ox or a donkey that was getting lazy and it wasn't pulling the card or pulling the plow, you'd come up and you'd poke him in the, in the back leg or something with this sharp stick. And if that animal was really stubborn, you know, then he would kick kick at it. Doesn't want to move, just kick at it. And what the Lord is saying to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goat. Well, what was that prodding? That goad that the Lord had been prodding, preparing Saul for his conversion it may very well have been the stoning of Stephen. It could have been that Saul was there when the Sanhedrin condemned him. He was there when Stephen's face began to shine brightly like an angel's face. He was there when Stephen was being stoned. He was there when, and heard Stephen say, the heavens are open and I see the Son of God at the right hand of God the Father. He heard that. And then amazingly, he heard Saul say, Father, forgive them. And he heard that gracious spirit of of Stephen in in his dying hour show such mercy and grace to others which Saul never had experienced probably in his life. And that was the Spirit of God prodding with the goad, Saul. And at that point, all he could do in his hardened heart was to kick against it. He must have been impressed by the death of Stephen. Stephen was an amazing man of God who had an amazing vision of Christ, an amazing utterance of faith and grace right when they were stoning him to death. It must have made an impression. But he kicked against the goad because his heart was so hardened. And even though the memory of Stephen's death and the grace and the vision and the words that he spoke might have been a gnawing conviction on his heart, Saul at this point, just, he'll just kick against it. And Jesus says, it's hard for you to do that because now I'm showing you the reality and living color of just how wrong and evil you have been. I think during those three days, when Saul was blind, verse 9, when he was fasting and praying, he's going through this soul wrenching experience. That everything he had believed in up to this point was being turned upside down. His theology, his convictions, his very purpose in life of going out and tracking down these Christians and bringing them back to Jerusalem so they could be imprisoned and hopefully put to death. All of his deep-rooted convictions are now being turned upside down. See, before he believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. He's an imposter and a fake. His crucifixion was staged while he was cursed by God. He's not a holy man of God. Jesus rising from the dead, that's a lie. That's a deception of His disciples. They probably stole the body. Jesus is buried somewhere in Judah. Disciples, all these Christians are false teachers. They're heretics. They're blaspheming the name of God. They're an abomination to the Jewish religion. And they they need to be stamped out. These were His convictions. That was His life mission. That was His calling. That was His passion. But now Jesus, who was dead, is very much alive and has supernaturally appeared to Saul, spoke to Saul... And in those three days, he's probably just racking his mind saying, how can this be? This isn't right. This can't be right. But yet, it's not a hallucination that I've just had. It's not a dream. These other men, they're testifying that they they saw the light. They heard the sound. They experienced it too. I'm not just hallucinating. It's not a dream. And I think during that time, it must have, dawned on him at some point that he was the one who had been deceived. He was the one who had been blinded by his own hate, by his own evil heart and the violence of his persecution that Jesus did rise from the dead. He just appeared to me. That must be the truth. And oh, what have I done? What have I done? In casting my approval for the death of Stephen and in beating up and violating violently persecuting these believers, I've been doing that to Jesus that has appeared to me, oh wretched man that I am. And for those three days he had to live with these thoughts of what kind of person he had been and what he had done to Jesus. In other words, On this road, Saul met the lion of the tribe of Judah that he thought did not exist. And it changed his life forever. In the final minutes that we have, I want to go back to these first words that Jesus spoke to Saul when He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then when Saul didn't know who he was, he says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And twice, the Lord is communicating this this foundational truth in the New Covenant that Christ is one with His people. That there is a unity between every believer in Jesus Christ. And that unity cannot be broken. And that whatever people do to a child of God, they do to Jesus. And it's the very first thing that Jesus spoke to Saul. And I think this is why it made such a tremendous impression upon him. And that's why I think you see it emphasized so much in Paul's writings. That Jesus identifies himself completely with his people. That truth, by the way, becomes a hallmark of Paul's letters. He of all the New Testament authors writes the most about our being in Christ and one with Christ. For example, if you take that little phrase in Christ, it occurs 87 times in the New Testament. 84 times out of the 87, you find it in Paul's letters. Three times by Peter. But Paul is the one who is emphasizing over and over again that we are in Christ. That we are one with Christ. And it becomes one of his doctrinal calling cards that you find it throughout all of his letters. It's kind of interesting that, that this was the truth that was impressed upon him in his conversion experience. And I think that's why, again, it made such a profound change in his thinking As he begins to look at Christians as being identified and unified with Jesus Christ Himself. Isaiah had a similar experience to that. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has his conversion experience, what did he hear the seraphim say about God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And in his conversion experience, Isaiah is impressed with a different truth. The truth of God's holiness. So that more than any other prophet, Isaiah is the prophet who writes about the holiness of God. Over 60 times in that one book of Isaiah, he writes that God is holy. He's the holy God. He's the holy one. Why? Because in his conversion experience, that was one of the dominating truths that God impressed upon him. And in a similar way with Saul, one of the great truths that brought about the conviction of his own sin was that what he had been doing to Christians, he had been doing to Jesus. The one who later on, he will understand, died to save him from his sins. And that unity between Christ and His people, again, so profoundly indicated by Jesus to Saul in His conversion becomes a dominant theme in His own writings. Of course, Jesus had actually taught this before. Remember back in John chapter 14, Jesus said, in that day you will know that I am in My Father and you are in Me and I am in you. John 14, verse 20, so that Jesus taught that in the new covenant, there is a spiritual bond between him and every single child of God. Jesus went on to say towards the end of his earthly ministry about the sheep goat judgment that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And the brothers here are not Jewish people; they are his spiritual brethren. Remember earlier, Jesus had already re- redefined who his mother and brothers were. They weren't those who were descended physically, connected physically to him. No, as those who did the will of God, those who had been born of God, those who had had faith in God. So when he says, "When you do it to the least of these brethren of mine, he says, you do it to Christians. You do it to me." And if you mistreat them, you're mistreating me and I know everything and I'm keeping books. And on the last day, everything you did, every thought you had, every word that you spoke against one of my children, you will have to stand and give an account for that because you do it to them and you did it to me. But if you show kindness and love and mercy, then you do that to me and I'll reward you on that day as well. So Jesus emphasized this truth. No wonder when He shows up with Saul on the road to Damascus, He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? You persecute My my brethren. You persecute Me because we are one. And again, this was a truth that I think Saul, later Paul, the Apostle, never recovered from. In fact, it's one of the the showcase doctrines of his letters where he presents the glory of our being in Christ like a kaleidoscope. And in so many ways, he describes it just to give us a sense of the glory of what it means that we are one with Christ. Some of the other analogies that Paul will use, he says Christ is the head and we are the body. We are one. Christ is the head. He leads. He commands. He He's the brain, if you will. He's the control, if you will. But we or His body were connected to Him. That unity idea. He goes on to say, Christ is a bridegroom and we are the bride. And in Ephesians 5 says, it's like when a man and a wife become one flesh in marriage. But this is a great mystery because back in Genesis, God was referring to Christ and His church. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And we become one. There's a spiritual, mystical unity that exists between Christ and His church. He's the chief cornerstone. We are the temple that are growing up out of Him. He's the anchor. He's the support. He's the one. But we are bricks in the same living stones in the same building connected to our great chief cornerstone. He's the shepherd. We are the sheep. He watches over us. He loves us. He guides us. He directs us. And all of this, all of these analogies communicate this precious truth that Christ is one with His people. And not only that, He is in us through His Holy Spirit. Christ now lives in you through His Spirit. And we are in Him. Believe it or not, it's an amazing truth. This uh, this great doctrine, this great uh, teaching, becomes really the key to our assurance of our salvation and our sanctification and our glorification. This unity that Christ is one with His people actually is a great source of assurance. It's the assurance of our salvation. Because our union with Christ is eternal. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 1. That we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Our unity in Christ was actually established in eternity past. Our union with the Savior is eternal. Secondly, it is salvific. Because when Christ died on the cross, He was taking our place. He was dying as our substitute. We were in Him and He was in us. And when He died on the cross, He bore our sins as if we were there dying on the cross. But He took our place. There's that union that we have with the Lord Jesus so that He is now in our stead in our place on the cross, bearing our sins, dying for us in our place. In effect, our penalty for our sin was paid in full by our substitute because there is a union between Christ and his people. That's what the whole idea of substitute means. He is taking our place because we are one with him. Our union for our salvation is not only eternal, it's not only salvific, it's also heavenly. Because even now, though you are sitting bodily in this room, we are also positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about this, that we were buried with Him and made alive together with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're already there. I mean, how greater assurance can you have than that? You're already there. Your substitute has already claimed the ground for you. He has won the battle for you. He is already there. He has arrived safe and sound. And and that is the guarantee that one day we will bodily join Him there as well. What incredible assurance of salvation that our union is not only eternal and salvific, it is heavenly even now at this moment. And fourthly, our salvation is assured because our union with Christ is unbreakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Not tribulations. I don't know what you're going through today. Not your tribulations. Not your persecution. Not demons. Not your own sin nature. Nothing in the past. Nothing today. Nothing tomorrow. Nothing in heaven or nothing in hell. There's nothing in life or nothing in death that can separate you from your union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him. It is an unbreakable union. Nothing in this cosmos can break it. The only One who could is God and He says He never will. He says that the calling of God is irrevocable. You cannot change it. You cannot reverse it. You know there's there's nothing stronger. There's no bond stronger than the union of God's people with Jesus Christ. You know in nature, you know what the strongest bond is? It's called the strong nuclear force. And it's the bond that holds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom. But you know what? We figured out a way to split the atom. The strongest force in this world, man has figured out a way to split it. But nobody can split apart. Nobody can break apart the union that God has with His people. As Jesus says, I hold you in My hands and nothing can can separate you from My hands. That's an unbreakable bond. So that our salvation is absolutely secure. Our assurance in the Word of God ought to give great comfort to us. And not only that, our growth in sanctification is also equally the outworking of this union with Christ It's because Christ is in us and we are in Him that we have power to live the Christian life. That we have the power to withstand temptation. We have the power to overcome sin and, and bear fruit because our union with Christ produces a communion with Christ. And it's by His Spirit as we abide in the vine, then we bear much fruit and bring glory to God. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. So our sanctification, the power of the Christian life flows because Christ is within us. And not only the power, but the very life that we have. As Paul says in Romans 6, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The life that we live, the Christian life, is the very life of the risen Lord Jesus dwelling in us. And that guarantees the measure of sanctification that all of God's people will have. That's why Paul could say, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, your Christian life is the life of Christ being lived out through you. And that's the assurance of our sanctification because He will never leave us nor will He ever forsake us. And finally, in glorification, our union with Christ is the assurance of our future glorification. Romans 6.5 Paul says, For we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly, there's no doubt about it. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Because we are joined with Christ in His death and burial and resurrection, it guarantees that as His body was glorified, so our body one day will be glorified with Him. And all of that is the outworking of our union with Jesus Christ. What a powerful truth God revealed to Saul on the day that Jesus saved him and brought him out of darkness into His marvelous light. I will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. That's Jesus's words to his people. That's Jesus's word to you this morning. In conclusion, all these this this great truth that Jesus is communicating that you persecute my fellow my my disciples, my sheep, my body, my church, my temple, You in any way persecute them, you persecute me because we are one together. And that truth had a very, very practical impact upon the life of Saul. It's an antidote to fear and worry and depression to know that Christ is always with me. He will never leave me. And what an encouragement in times of discouragement. And what a source of strength in time of weakness. You know, at the very end of Paul's life when he's writing 2 Timothy. The book that he writes right before he is executed and put to death by Nero Caesar. He writes in a very practical way, living out, living in this great truth that Jesus taught him on the very day that He confronted him on the road to Damascus. And Paul is writing, you know, at my first defense, no one supported me. Everybody deserted me. And may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me. And He strengthened me. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And He'll deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. And days or weeks before this great man of God would be put to death for his faith in Christ, he remembers this sad, tragic, tragic experience of feeling so deserted and isolated and abandoned by everyone, but in the midst of everyone else leaving, Christ never left him. And he said, he never left me. He stood with me and he strengthened me. And that's part of the encouragement and the blessing and the practical side of of our unity with Jesus Christ. And again, this is the truth that Jesus confronted Saul with, the very first truth he pressed upon his mind and heart that brought such conviction to Saul, but he never got over it. And it impressed him so much, his dying thoughts were rejoicing in the strength of the blessing of knowing that though man is unfaithful and man is fickle, my Jesus will never leave me. He is with me forever. He is in me and I am in him and my future is secure in his hands. And may God encourage our hearts as well with that great truth. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to to hear this incredible conversion experience of this wicked, vile persecutor. And yet in your sovereign grace, you chose to save him and Change him and transform him into a great apostle of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your power to change the most desperate lives of the worst sinners imaginable, that your arm is not short, that you can save anyone, and we rejoice in that great truth. But we also thank you for the truth of our unity with Christ, our oneness with the Savior. And what a strong hope, what an assurance it gives to us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ alone to save us from our sins. So Lord, encourage us with that unbreakable bond that every child of God has with Jesus. And may we find great joy in that today. For we ask it in His name. Amen.